Father, we do rejoice this morning, and we pray that all we do would be a sweet sound in your ear and a sweet aroma to you in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was said that the sacrifices of the priests were an incense in heaven and put off a great aroma that rose up into the very presence of God. And we pray our service will be such a sacrifice before the Lord today. I'm going to ask you this morning to open to Romans chapter 7, as advertised. I'm going to read to you from verse 6 down to the end. We need to read this whole section this morning. Uh, As you know, I have no intention of trying to do justice to this complicated chapter in one session, but I think for context, we really need to hear the ruminations of the Apostle Paul in the very famous Romans chapter 7. So from verse 6, I'll begin reading. And so Paul writes, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not have known covetousness unless the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. 
but with the flesh, the law of sin. Oh, Father, unravel this for us this morning. Make us familiar with the deep things of God. By the hand of your apostle, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Another law warring in my members. Another law warring in my members. Pastor Ken used to quote an old proverb. I believe it was a, an old African proverb. It said, there are two dogs fighting within me. There's the black dog and the white dog, or the good dog and the bad dog, right? And so someone said, which one wins? And the old priest said, the one I feed. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, the lights blinked. I did that. <laughs> now, you know, I just ordered a generator for the church. I did. I don't know what's happening, but if the lights go out, I'll preach to you in the dark. Hallelujah. <laughs> So what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now you know apostles, the apostle's not going to go, yes, the law is sin. The children of Israel follow that sinful law. You know he's not going there. But he's leading us along to make a point or a number of points. He says, of course the law is not sin. Certainly not. Maybe your old Bible says, God forbid, I accept either. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. That's pretty understandable, right? Then he gives the example. I would not have known covetous unless the law said you shall not covet. I might have thought covetousness was, well, that's just okay. I didn't know it was evil, but the law. Friends, the law is light. It puts light on sin, and sin doesn't like light. You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus about that very thing? I'm looking it up for you. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When your deeds are evil, you don't like the light and the law is light. And it inflames sin within you. It's warring in your members, the apostle said. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Do you ever find yourself in sin and say, Find some great excuse not to be in church on Sunday. You know where all that light is, I hope. <laughs> he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. And so the apostle, friends, he just spent the better part of chapters 5 and 6 and the first six verses of chapter 7 demonstrating that the believer by faith has been exonerated from the guilt of sin and the penalty of the law. We've been exonerated. We're dead to the law and alive to God. Now, if you're very careful in your reading and in following through the chapters with us on Sunday, you'll see that there seems to be a paradox here, a seeming contradiction. A paradox is not a contradiction. It's a seeming contradiction. And it's up to preachers to figure out how it all plays together. So the apostle spent the better part of the last few chapters 
exonerating the justified sinner who is now the saint. See, as soon as you're justified, you're a saint. You're set apart for God's use. Exonerating us from the guilt. All those things we did in the past, we're not guilty of. But sin is still around. And it's got us trained. And it doesn't like that we've come to a knowledge of what it is and how it works. Sin has a mind of its own. I'm going to demonstrate that to you this morning. So we've been exonerated from the guilt of sin and the penalty of the law, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Paul wrote to Pastor Titus, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Why did he save us? Because we couldn't save ourselves. That's what chapter 8's about. Oh, I'm, I'm much better on chapter 8 than chapter 7. i got to tell you, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. Regeneration's another word for rebirth. All right? You're regenerated. And the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us. God poured out his spirit, which is his presence and his power and his washing and cleansing upon us. That's what justification is. And he did it abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, Jesus is the great baptizer. I don't know if you knew that. John the Baptist said, indeed, I baptize you with water. But a greater than me is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the real baptizer. He immerses you in the Holy Spirit. Baptize means immerse. John did it symbolically in water. Jesus does it literally by immersion in the Holy Spirit. So let's keep that in mind as we go through Paul's thinking here. The Christian is a person who's justified before God. That means your, your ledger's been balanced. It's justified. Did you ever get audited? How do you justify these charges? Well, here it is. Here's the, here's the ledger and there's the, the balance. You're justified. It's kind of an economic term, if you will. And justification, justification is a process that's done to us by God. You can't justify yourself. That's really the whole problem with man. We have to wait and rely on God to justify us. He can, uh, man can't justify himself. Paul's taught emphatically that the saint is dead to the law and alive to Christ, released from the law, bound up in grace, dead to sin, alive to God. And yet there seems to be this pervading dualism in the regenerate psyche, the saved man. There's this dualism as to just where this new revelation has taken him. Are we free to act righteously? We are free to act righteously. But are we unhindered in acting righteously? Certainly not. We're free to act righteously, but we're not unhindered. There are hindrances. There are obstacles. There is a great obstacle called sin. Sin is there to tempt and to seek its own. And to deceive us into thinking we can't act righteously. Friends, faith saves in an instant. Faith saved me in an instant. I was one man one instant, one man a different man the next instant. Oh, if faith would sanctify us with that same speed. But it doesn't. It's like a drowning man being dragged to shore. He's saved. He's alive. But he still needs further help. He needs some resuscitation. He's got to have his chest pumped. He may even need to go to the hospital and have his um, lungs worked on. 
He needs further resuscitation before he's able to breathe again on his own. We might say that faith does not demand righteousness. It only provides the freedom to act righteous. There's something in you, this I, this me that Paul keeps talking about. You know, as you you look at an overview of this, and that's what I want to give today. I want to give a sort of bird's eye or heaven's eye view of this, if you will, and not get into all the particulars um, as, a, as a first approach to this, to this text. But um, it's like um, faith provides freedom to act righteously, a freedom that does not exist in the unregenerate soul. All right, The unregenerate man, the, the unsaved man, cannot act righteously of his own. The, the, the saved man can, but he's not unhindered in that. So faith frees the soul, yet the soul still struggles for its righteous expression of grace. It's still hard for us to not sin because we're so practiced in it. We had great discussions on this the other evening. It seems we're influenced to the call of the flesh. The phrase the flesh here refers to our habituated carnal appetites. I looked up the word habituated. I didn't make it up. It's real. The flesh here refers to what we've been all our lives. And so the call of the flesh is the satiation or the satisfaction of its own appetites that have not yet been vanquished by faith. We still have carnal desires, carnal lusts and appetites. They're still there. And so this vanquishing of former lusts, that is appetites, becomes the application of faith. Sanctification is the application of justification. And it's an ongoing process. We don't expect to get to perfection in this life. The Bible's really quite clear on that. So what Paul is saying is that in a certain sense, our flesh or our carnal desires, which are under attack by the law, that's the word of God, are all the more strengthened by the residual sin in the believer. We still strive against sin. The writer of Hebrews said, you have not yet resisted unto bloodshed striving against sin. It's a difficult battle, a difficult walk. Which dog are you feeding? So the law in the preceding chapters is depicted as a cruel master, you may remember. It's said to be a former spouse, right? Isn't that what he said? And then you died, and the, and the marriage was null and void through death, and you married another Jesus Christ. That was Paul's illustration. We delved into that quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. The law is said to be a former owner, and you the former slave that's held by the owner. So he gives us all of these illustrations of our relationship to the law. And yet, as I said last week, we must not see the law as an evil thing that's binding us, that's trying to hurt us. It's not that at all. Rather, the law is a good thing. It's, in fact, a gift from God. We love to make distinctions between law and grace. And there are distinctions, great defining things that need to be made. Because the law promotes a form of spiritual bondage, while grace promotes spiritual liberty. And we love to We love that dualism. We want it black and white, but sin complicates it, right? So there's this distinct dichotomy present, but at the same time, grace and law are different, but they're not polar opposites, friends. 
and I've made this point many times over the years, I've always taught that the law, though binding and restricting and condemning, comes with its own form of grace. The law is a grace in and of itself. I'll explain. And grace comes with its own law. So grace has law, and law has grace, yet grace and law are distinct. Here's one of the laws that we have under our new relationship of grace with Christ. From Galatians chapter 6, he said, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Grace has laws too. Grace has commandments too. The Lord Jesus Christ is said to be full of grace, but even grace comes with its own law, right? Grace, we said, was unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. It's undeservable. You couldn't deserve it no matter how hard you tried. It's just a gift, remember? We labored over the gift, the gift, the free gift, Paul said. A gift is always free, but he called it free anyway. And so in that sense, consider that the children of Israel, when they received the law from Moses on Sinai, received a great gift. Now, if you remember... God was on the mountain with Moses for 40 days. It was a fiery spectacle. Even if an animal approached the mountain, it would die. You weren't allowed to go near the mountain. You'd be zapped out of existence. God only called Moses just one. Sometimes he does it that way. He doesn't usually come down and preach to everyone. Jesus did, but elsewhere in the scriptures, he picks one prophet, and he's burdened with going to tell everybody else what God said. And it wasn't a case where they said, well, I don't know if God really met you on that mountain. They knew God met Moses on that mountain, right? So they received a great gift from God. No other people in history were so privileged to hear directly from the creator of the universe in such particular and personal ways as the Israelites. What a great gift the law was. But at the same time, the law is frightening, and the law is powerful. But what its power is and what the strength of the law is is its piercing truth. The law is truth. The law is the divine gauge that tells us just how far we've fallen from the perfect righteousness of Eden. Right? It tells us how far we've fallen. It comes with condemnations. Friends, the law comes with ultimatums. Do this or else. The law is frightening. Its sentences are non-negotiable. And so it becomes for us the list of do's and don'ts that are impossible to keep. So the law is righteous. It's a righteous guide. But it's a very poor savior. And that's Paul's point. Consider this, friends. Man was writhing in his own sin since the fall. He was like the sow turning to the mire, as Jesus said, or the dog returning to his own vomit. He was fallen and broken and undeserving, and yet revelation from God came from the fiery mountain. It came engraved by the finger of God on tablets of stone. God didn't even trust Moses to write it. He wrote it himself. Never before had the Lord troubled himself to reveal himself to an entire people so personally, so powerfully, and so intimately It was just between them in the desert wilderness of the time. And he kept them there 40 years. And he fed them from his own hand every day for 40 years. No real contact with the outside world at all. Just the people of God with their God. So the law was frightening and powerful. But they didn't deserve to have the law. 
They didn't deserve to know God's mind concerning their righteousness. And so the law, though harsh and demanding and unforgiving, was also undeserved. And I'll contend with you today that Paul in this passage puts himself in the place of the rest of the world who without the law were left happily unsuspecting of the degree to which they were an offense to God. Without the law, we might say, well, I'm not perfect. You hear people say that, I'm not perfect. What they really mean when they say I'm not perfect, what do they mean? I'm really good. That's what they mean. Eh, I'm not perfect. I can't claim perfection. Because you know why? A really, really good guy would be humble enough to say I'm not perfect. So they know that, so they sneak that in. But really what they mean is I'm a pretty good guy. You ever hear people say, I'm human. I make mistakes. You know, what they're really saying is I'm a righteous person. Think about it. That's, that's what they mean when they say it. And so I'm going to try to develop this later, this idea that we were unsuspecting of our unrighteousness until the law shed light on it. It's kind of like, and I've given this illustration to you before, if you go to the book of Nehemiah, you'll find Nehemiah built the wall and Ezra was there. And Ezra was reinstituting the worship of God, which hadn't been done for hundreds of years. In fact, so much so that the Hebrews didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Did you know that by the time Jesus Christ came to earth, Hebrew was already a dead language? The only one that spoke it and knew it were the priests. Jesus didn't even speak it. He spoke Aramaic. It was a dead language because the Babylonians came in and that's how they deal with you. They steal your culture. They steal your language. They steal your gods and your religion. But Ezra was reinvigorating the people. And so he got up on the pulpit and he read the the law of God because that was the Bible in those days. No New Testament, right? He read the law of God for six hours, and the people cried. And they didn't cry because they were in a long six-hour service. (laughs) They cried because they realized how far they had come from righteousness before God. That's what the law does. It makes us cry. I could never live up to that. But it doesn't make the law sin. It's like saying turning the lights on is sinful because we get to see the dust in the corners. You ever sit in your house early in the morning when the sun's just coming up or in the afternoon when the sun's just going down and you look where it's going and it goes under the couch? (laughs) Karen hates this illustration. And it goes behind that little space under the TV on top of the cable box and the spider webs are all in there. My house isn't like that, but I know yours... Yours are. But that's the law coming in, showing the sin that you didn't know was there. You didn't even think about it. You never even thought to stick the vacuum, that skinny part, you know, in there. You never even thought that until dusk. And an hour later, you forgot all about it. The sun's down, you can't see it anymore. No more law. No more sin. That's what it was like to these people. They were left happily unsuspecting of the degree to which they were an offense to God. But the law came in. I'm going to try to develop this, as I said, but that's why Paul can write, I was alive once without the law. Now, if you've been paying attention, that should seem like a contradiction to what he said earlier. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He's speaking about his personal journey from Pharisee to faith, or so it seems to me. A Pharisee, he really knew the law. But he's doing so by putting himself in the place of every man who has surrendered to Christ. Now, God spoke hard sayings to his people, but it was a grace that he chose 
to speak to them at all. The law was harsh, and it spoke to us of how evil we are. But it was the grace of God that he chose to speak to us at all. He didn't speak to the Hittites. He didn't speak to the Philistines. He spoke to the Hebrew nation, the sons of Abraham, whom he had covenant with. Right? He spoke hard sayings to them, but it was a grace that he chose to spoke to them at all. Remember that the law depicts the righteous requirement of God for man. That's what it does. And so in and of itself, it can only be a good thing. It would be blasphemy to speak of the law as an evil thing. And so Paul strenuously resists calling the law evil. Yet due to his teaching that the faithful have outgrown the law as a child outgrows his tutors, the man of faith must move on from the law. It's no longer his master. He's no longer married to it. For the law was a former spouse separated by death and the believers become a new bride to a new husband. So he's bound by faith to Christ now. And he made that point in the first few verses of this chapter. So having spoken about the scope of the law being expired, in other words, it no longer has its condemning power over us in that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ on our behalf, he still clings to and appeals to the nature of the law, which is perfect. He, doesn't, he will not have us think badly of the law. The law is the perfect expression of divine directives concerning the standard of human righteousness that comes from God. And though no man is able to keep it, it persists in its divine nature as good and holy. Why would we think we could measure up to divine holiness? That in itself is sinful. That in itself is thinking too highly of ourselves. And so the apostle anticipated that because he kept saying that the law couldn't save us and that the law killed us, he anticipates that a students hearing this will get the wrong, come to the wrong conclusion. We love dualities of nature and seek to impose them where they don't belong. We love to simplify. We love to simplify the law is bad, grace is good. Wouldn't that be easy for us? He won't let them come to that conclusion. He knows logically they may come there. But sin's the thing that complicates it, friends. Theology would be simple if it were not for sin. Think how easy theology would be if it wasn't for sin. Lloyd-Jones wrote on the subject of this very thing. He said, this not only sounds complicated, but it is complicated. It's the complicated condition of a man who's enlightened by the Spirit of God and about the law of God. This is what he discovers about himself. Self-discovery is complicated. It's in our nature to say grace is good, the law is bad. But Paul's having none of it. Both are good with regard to the function that they serve in our spiritual development. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And the apostle won't have us look badly upon the law. Look badly upon yourself for not measuring up to God's perfect law. And so now that we're saved, and now that we've outgrown the old guide and schoolmaster, though we no longer strive as we once strove to meet the righteous requirement of the precept and the statutes of the law, we look again to the law, not as a way of salvation, friends, but as a useful tool in the process of sanctification. The law is still a useful tool for us. It can't save us. It had no power to do so. It can't condemn us. Not anymore. We're beyond its reach but it still has a purpose in teaching the precepts of divine righteousness. 
We're not bound by sin anymore. Faith has driven it out. We're no longer driven to Christ by fear. For perfect love casteth out fear. Yet Paul would not have us forget that sin still exists in the universe and in the mind and heart and in the memory of man. Oh, that cursed memory of man. We remember the things that once gave us pleasure. And you know, if those are sinful things, then those memories are sin. Don't play around with them. Even now, in our new dispensation of grace, we must resist the lore of sin. It's still a struggle. And there's no other place but the law to look for the definitions of sin. For I would not have known covetousness if the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. I would not have known the bloody nature of the sin of adultery, which is to look upon a woman to lust for her, Jesus said, if the law had not taught us, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I would never have understood the essential value of every human life if the law had not said, Thou shalt not kill. Or the righteousness of truth, if I had not been commanded, do not bear false witness against your neighbor to his destruction. And he goes on to say, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I want you to bear with me here and not take it absolutely literally what he's saying. It's not a literal statement. Apart from the law, sin was dead. It was a perceived condition. You understand? Matthew Henry wrote this, Ever since Adam ate forbidden fruit, we've all been fond of forbidden paths. The diseased appetite is carried out most strongly towards that which is hurtful and prohibited. Without the law, he says further, sin was dead as a snake in winter with the sunbeams of the law that quicken and irritate it. You know, a snake goes into hibernation. Sometimes it amazes me how the ancients knew so much about nature. Um, The law is a snake, friends, and just because it's asleep doesn't mean it's dead. Remember, it was sin that said, thou shalt not surely die. Right? Matthew Henry again. He says, the same sun that makes the garden of flowers more fragrant makes the dunghill more noisome. The same heat that softens wax hardens clay. The same child was set for the fall and rising of many again in Israel. The prophecy of old Simeon in the temple in Luke chapter 2. Remember? This son will be the, this child will be the rising and falling of many in Israel. Same son, right? Different destinies for all who confront him. Faith vanquished the penalty of sin. That's a fact. But it has yet work to do to vanquish the tenacity of sin. Sin does not want to let go. It's as if faith was a spade that broke the back of the snake, but the head still intact reared to bite the spade holder all the more violently. That's my illustration. I've actually (laughs) lived that. The law is an accelerant that inflames sin. And so he writes in verse 9, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. This is where I have to ask your close attention. The first thing we have to come to terms with here is that the apostle is not speaking literally. Now, I'm a big context guy. 
In the context lies the unraveling of the meaning of God's word because words mean things. But genre is important too. And he doesn't always speak literally. Sometimes he speaks figuratively. The apostles even said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? He said, because it's not given to them to know. I'll tell you what the meanings are, but it's not given to them to know, so I'll only speak to them in parables. He said, remember that? The genre is important too. That means the type of literature that we're reading here. So the first thing to come with terms with here is that Paul's not speaking literally. When he says, I was alive without the law, he's speaking of the conceit, of the confidence of the flesh that's present in the natural man. The rat natural man perceived life. He didn't really have it. He's on his way to perdition. The natural man, the unregenerate man, has a certain measure of peace even in his sin. I know people who are never disturbed about, by pangs of conscience over anything. And why not? Why should the devil molest people who are quietly living for him? Why shake things up? Right? It seems to me we need a little primer on sin, and I'm going to do that right now. Sin, in the, the popular notion of sin, is that it's a non-entity. It's a non-thing. It's just sort of the absence of good, right? Psychology today, modern psychology, doesn't recognize sin. Um, morality to, the, to modern psychology just comes with education. You know, how do you teach, how do uh, you get young kids not to um, commit sexual sin? Oh, they need more education. We don't want to have so, so many single mothers. What do you need? Well, you give them some prophylactic help and you, and you give them education. Education will never supplant morality. That your conscience actually tells you don't do this thing because it's wrong. Education doesn't do that, you see. That's the modern psychological view of sin. It's just an absence of knowing certain pragmatic things. And then you won't do them. So to the modern mind... It's the absence of doing good. To the psychologist, it doesn't even exist. Moral living for him does not come by faith. It comes by education. You see, the faithless man is confident in his own powers of reason, not knowing that even reason is the gift of God. The whole reason he can reason is a gift and grace of God. And that Romans chapter 1 declares that God has withdrawn that from human society. And if you haven't seen that, you haven't been paying attention. We live in a pretend world now. We got to pretend the basics of life are not true anymore. God gave them up, Paul said to the Romans in chapter 1. And what did he give them up to? He gave them up to vile passions, their own passions. He's not going to give them the law anymore. He's just going to let them writhe in their own sin to their own destruction. He gave them up to a depraved, debased, reprobate mind, whichever version you have, that they might become futile in their thoughts. Friends, we live in a time of futility of thought like I've never seen. Futility of thought. What is a woman? I don't know. Are you one? I don't know that either. I mean, we don't know anything anymore. And we're asked to pretend that something that is clearly not real is real. And as a society, we're trying to be forced into thinking this way, but that's because the society's been given up to a depraved mind. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And a sure sign of mass confusion is a growing number of experts, and we have plenty of those. 
To say that we're alive apart from the law is to say that we've become our own moral compass. And I suggest to you that's what Paul means here. It simply means that the sin living in us was content and undisturbed before the law came. It was a form of life. It felt like life. Sin, like carbon monoxide, friends, is invisible. You know about carbon monoxide? You have a little beeper in the house that'll tell you when the carbon monoxide's coming up? I had a whole bunch of cousins, distant cousins a couple years ago, die in their house from carbon monoxide poisoning. Very, very sad. It's silent. It's invisible. You breathe it in. You go to sleep. You don't even know it's there. That's sin. It's like that. It always leads the easy breather to his death. It lulls the sinner to a moral sleep from which, if he's not awakened, will wake up in hell. And sin has had its perfect work, you might say. And so a sinner in his carnal state is led peacefully off to his own destruction, undisturbed undisturbed by conscience. See, the law comes in and inflames conscience. Suddenly it's like, conscience? My spirit's speaking to me about what I'm doing. How did this happen? And so whatever makes us happy in the moment gives us that certain peace that the apostle here is calling my former life, my peaceful life. I remember those days. Do you remember before you were a Christian? Those days where whatever makes me happy is is good. There are whole philosophies that teach that. Hedonism is the name of one of them. Consider a person to whom you might proclaim Christ. Think about this. He may be confident in his own eternal security. You've heard people say that. You talk about Christ. Ah, I'm okay. I'm good. He's confident in his own security. Perhaps he has a code of justice in his own mind and he, that seems reasonable to him. Most people do, right? He might even quote to you the golden rule. Everyone loves the, the golden rule. Everyone secretly wants Jesus to agree with them, by the way. All right? So this man's at peace. He's confident in and of himself. He's got his reason. He's reasoned things out. He's an educated man. He can talk. He can debate you about spiritual things. He's pretty confident in himself. He may even be devout. He may go to church every Sunday or Mass every day or other services and give homage to his own version of devotion. But when you say to him that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, the very notion insults him. He doesn't need that. That's your truth. Have you heard that one? How is it that a good man needs a mediator, he's wondering? I mean, I'm not perfect, which means I am perfect. I'm telling you that's what it means. You think about it next time in the conversation. Put the context there, and you'll see when someone says I'm not perfect, they think they are. How can you be so arrogant, he might say, to presume that there's but one path to righteousness, one way to eternal life, one person in all of history who can lead you there? That's arrogance in the carnal mind, friend. The notion's easily dismissed by the confident man that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Easily dismissed in the moment. His peace has not been disturbed apart from the momentary indignation that he feels that you think he needs your God and bothered to preach to him. He was at peace, but guess what, friends? Now he's been presented. The word is there. Sin has a life of its own, but so does the word, right? And the word has a power of its own. It will haunt him when he least expects it. He's heard it now. 
Like it or not, he's responsible to react to what he's heard. His first reaction was not good. But the word will not come back void, but will accomplish that thing for which it was sent. It'll either save or condemn one or the other, but it will accomplish something. And in the course of time, that confident man will be disturbed by circumstances. All of a sudden, he's not confident anymore. He can't because he's been served papers. He has the gospel in his hand. There's one way, one God, one truth. He doesn't like it, but it starts to haunt him. Because sin's coming up in him. Sin knows he's been served, right? Until now, he's been at peace with his thoughts and his presumed path to eternity. But he's not so sure. The word came into the presence of sin within him. And the word, like the law of God, aggravates and inflames the sin in the man. Now he doesn't just reject it. He hates it, and he hates you for saying it. Have you seen this? We have a whole society embroiled in this right now. And so Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but the commandment came and sin revived and I died. He's channeling this process. The law, the word of God, friends, is like waking a sleeping dragon. His domain was secure until the intruder came into his midst and the light was shined in his lair where he's sleeping is made known. And that intruder was the word. So you see, son, you see, friends, sin is an animate force. It is not nothing. It is not the absence of something. It is its own thing. It is a thing. It is a power. It has life of its own. It has desires. Sin has goals. Sin even has an influential voice. Remember what God said to Cain about sin. He said, sin lies at the door, and then what? Its desire is for you. Sin has desire. It's a thing. Verses 11 through 14. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now that is a theological mouthful, however you look at it. Reconciling all the parts is not only difficult, I have found no two commentators who agree on all the parts. But thankfully, you have me. <laughs> I wish that were the case. No, but I, I'm going to do my best. But I have to disagree on certain points with men I respect so highly. I mean, just so you know, I mean, the greatest theologian of all time, any, every theologian will say is John Calvin. There's just no... I mean, even James Arminius told his students to read Calvin, who was the best prophet since the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? You should, if you've heard me, because I've said it many times over the years. Even James Arminius. We think, oh, Calvin, Arminius, oh, they're against each other. They were contemporaries, and Arminius told everyone to read Calvin, but I'm a Baptist. Calvin wasn't a Baptist. <laughs> So sometimes we disagree with those who we look upon highly. 
So let me try to get through this with you. And I'm going to give you an overview that I think it works. Sin took a good man, Adam, and turned him instantly into a whining, excuse-making, blame-shifting fool. The wife that you gave me. It isn't me. As soon as you've sinned, that's what you do. You blame-shift. Oh, well, look at the circumstances I was dealing with. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. And the woman, I mean, that brash thing you gave me and told me she was help me to me. She told me I wouldn't die if I ate the apple. What did he do? He made his wife his God. It's really, that's how God looks at idolatry. The thing you choose over God is your God. De facto God. You'll say all day long, no, it isn't my God. No, those drugs I'm addicted to, they're not my God. They're your de facto God. You're lusting after that. Maybe it's money, whatever it might be. But sin took a good man, Adam, and it changed him instantly into a whining, blame-shifting excuse maker. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Sin did that. He should have been on his knees thanking God for Eve, like Rick thanks God for Susan. But sin would have no part in it. The commandment was good. There was one commandment, friends, but sin would have no part in it. One commandment, and sin still had to come in and wreck it. Right? One commandment. But the tree in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat of. One commandment. Too much for sin. Sin's insulted by that. That's the man you serve papers on with the gospel. That's sin speaking when he shows his indignation. Commandments are insulting to sin, and sin is an entity. Sin would have no master. No commandment will command me no. And so when one presents itself, sin goes on the warpath, and so heaps sin upon sin. Now, there's a lot of disagreement as to the nature of the man depicted in Paul's treatise on sin. Is he regenerate or unregenerate? Now, you've probably asked yourself as you went through this. We batted this around Friday night, went around with it, and it was very edifying and enlightening. And as I said, we could have done away with all the accoutrements and the conversation would have fed fed us. But the food was good. But I'm not going to take the time here to go through the uh, opinions and and all the versions, different versions people have on this subject because they are myriad. But there are a couple of considerations we should investigate. It was said by Lloyd-Jones and others that the man in the passage cannot be unregenerate, meaning unsaved, right? Because the unregenerate do not not think in this spiritual probing way. You understand the unregenerate guy, I've just described him, he's not thinking about his sin. It's the regenerate guy that's worried about sin. So the man in in the chapter must be unregenerate. And I agree with that reasoning, but it's not exactly what I see in the chapter. In this section, it seems to me that Paul is speaking here. He said, I died. Right? Now, we know that Paul is regenerate. He's born again. So how is it that he died? How is it that he was alive in sin? We have his account on the road to Damascus. We know how he got saved. We know he did get saved. He had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And so that would play well for those who believe that this passage is the plea of the regenerate. I get it. 
But if that's the case, how do we reconcile the blatant admission of the spiritually dead condition of the speaker who says, I am carnal, sold under sin? Is Paul really giving testimony? Or is he figuratively channeling the process of what happens to all people? Now, we know that in a perfect dualistic world, there are only two major categories of spiritual existence. We've gone over this, and I believe this. There's regenerate, there's unregenerate. Lloyd-Jones says it. Calvin says it. We all say it. There's regenerate, there's unregenerate. There are those who are justified and those who are not. There's those who are saved and those who are unsaved. And let's never lose sight of that. Those are the categories. However, if for purposes of instruction... A subcategory could be introduced. I suggest to you there are two. For purposes of instruction, at least, let's understand what Paul is trying to teach here. There's a transitional category that would solve the great problems of Romans 7, at least to some extent for me, and I hope for you in the coming weeks as I go through it, but I suggest to you that there is a moment, a twinkling-in-the-eye moment, that exists between two worlds and two eternities, and whether or not the apostle speaking literally of such a category, he's certainly speaking figuratively of it. And that's what we have here. We read from verse 8 that apart from the law, sin was dead. The apostle declares it emphatically, yet our theology tells us that it cannot be literally true. It is rather a perceived truth, and he's speaking from that persona, if you will. We might say this, we might say sin was hiding, or sin was dormant, like a sleeping dragon, or a hibernating snake, as Matthew Henry said. But the sin's not literally dead, it's there. It was there in the garden somewhere, right? It didn't belong there. It was there in the garden somewhere. It existed. Adam didn't create sin. So from verse 8, we read that apart from the law, sin was dead. The apostle says it emphatically, but our theology tells us it is not literally true. It is rather a perceived truth that he's trying to use as a teaching method for us. Sin was not dead. It was merely undiscovered. Think about it in the garden scenario. Sin was there. And as soon as it was acted upon, as soon as you took its advice, it gave it life. It's quite like the educated man of the 15th century. You see how far I've I've grasped for illustrations? It's like the educated man of the 15th century thought he knew so much about the world, and most of it was unknown to him. He didn't know there were two huge continents. But discovery made him stupid. Oops. Reality made his great learning of less value. Columbus really messed these guys up. You know, these kings were like, you want, you want to do what with my money? There's nothing there. The learned men will all tell you there's nothing there. By the way, they didn't think the earth was flat. Eratosthenes rightly calculated the circumference of the earth at roughly 24,000 miles, 300 years before Christ. So they weren't, they weren't really thinking the earth was flat. Maybe some of the sailors were thinking that, but... No, not the, not, the, uh, not the navigators, certainly. 
Sin lay sleeping and quietly doing its work undisturbed until revelation came. The law came, and the intruder aggravated the sleeper. And so the wakened force of sin fights hard against the law to preserve its domain as master and lord. Sin heard the law come in, heard the gospel come in, and fought against it. It'll make you worse than what you were. It was happy to let you die peacefully in sin and go to perdition. But now it's been disturbed. The preacher came in. The friend, the stranger, the relative came in with a word from God, and the man's shaken up now. Is the man in the chapter like Felix? Do you remember Felix? I'm really drawing on illustrations here. All right, Felix was one of the governors that tried Paul, okay? When Paul was at the end of the book of Acts, when Paul was tried for his crime of preaching, right? Declaring another God. When Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish... He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. The word made Felix afraid, one of the powerful men of the world. The word of a man in chains made Felix afraid. He's now the informed unregenerate. That's who he is. He's still unregenerate, but he's he's informed. He has knowledge that hasn't changed him yet. He's got to react to it. It hasn't changed him, but he knows, and he's convicted, and the sin in him makes him afraid. Really, it made him angry. And so what did he say? Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. (laughs) Yeah, right. You're going to call Paul back to preach to you the gospel again. That's going to happen, Felix. By the way, you never hear from Felix again. Festus replaced him. You never hear from Felix again. Felix heard the word, was convicted, was afraid, and so postponed his rendezvous with Christ. So far as we know, he never called again for Paul. So I would say that Felix is of a third category, a subcategory. We may call him informed unregenerate. Now some of us, because we don't know our theology, are uninformed regenerate. We're saved because that has nothing to do with our acceptance, with our efforts, with all of that. We're, we're saved because God saved us, period. That's what chapter 8 of Romans is going to drive home to you. But a lot of people are uninformed. You know, the hardest thing for a preacher is to have someone come in who's, um, you know, controversial and sort of boisterous in their opinions, and they just think they know, but they don't. They don't have enough background to really talk about the things that they think they know. It's hard to get through to that. It takes some teaching, some time. So there's the informed unregenerate. It's the man you preach the gospel to whose circumstances are going to get hard in his life and he's suddenly going to remember that you informed him and it could change his life. And I'll tell you how at the end of this. But in the, there's another man. There's Agrippa. You remember Agrippa in chapter 25 and 26? Agrippa, by the way, is the great-grandson of Herod. His name is Herod Agrippa. The Bible calls him Agrippa. He comes out with Bernice or Berenice, right? And it's not his wife, it's his sister. Just a little background in that if you go back and read it. But King Agrippa comes out, and King Agrippa is a Hellenistic Jew. He's not Jewish, but he accepts the Jewish culture. He's king of the Jews, like his great-grandfather Herod, and then Herod Antipas, right? And then Herod uh, Philip. And then, of course, there was, uh, there was Herod, uh, uh, Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12 who imprisoned Peter, remember? He imprisoned Peter, and he killed John and James with the sword. 
He was an Agrippa, he was a Herod, and this is Herod Agrippa, his son. Just a little background here, all right? So Herod Agrippa, who was, Paul said, expert in all things Hebrew. He was next in line to hear Paul's defense. And so we read, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me. A great Puritan preacher, Matthew Mead, wrote a book on that verse called The Almost Christian. They hung him, by the way, for preaching back as a run-up to the English Civil War. But Matthew Mead is a great Puritan who was a great preacher and wrote a really good book called The Almost Christian. Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. That's when Paul said, I wish that you were altogether the same as I am but for these chains. Is the man who struggles with sin an almost Christian? Or is he a genuine Christian? Is he unregenerate and yet feeling the conviction of the word? Or is he saved and yet faltering in his faith? Is he certain of his condition? Could he possibly have any assurance of salvation? See, that's the other thing. You can be as saved as anybody else and not have any assurance because you're the uninformed regenerate. So indulge me for a moment. I would rather offer my personal assessment of the passage. I want to do what Paul did to the Corinthians. He said, engage in a little folly with me. You know when he said that in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians? Bear with me in a little folly. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, he said. Then he went on with this, with this thing. That's very Pauline to sort of switch off and go into something a little more figurative. And so what seems Paul's confession and the, clues, and the conclusions he reaches about himself may not actually literally be that. If we take the passage at face value, it is a personal confession of Paul and his own struggles with residual sin. Now, we know that Paul is saved, yet as we've just said from verse 14, he said, I'm carnal and I'm sold under sin. It seems to me he cannot be both. So either this person is not Paul or it's Paul not speaking literally of himself in the moment. He could be talking about the old Paul before the road to Damascus, right? But he doesn't give us all that. He does say, I'm carnal, sold under sin, which we know isn't true because in Romans chapter 1, the first half, he extols his qualifications to be an apostle and a spokesman for Christ. He is definitely saved. He is not carnal and sold under sin. And that's my position. But let me go further with it. It seems to me that Paul, though he pretends to offer a personal confession of sin and sinfulness, is actually doing a very Pauline thing. Remember that Paul was taken to the third heaven? Do you remember this? I have it in the notes for you, 2 Corinthians 12. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Never mentions that it was him. We all assume it was him. He sort of channels this other persona. I know a man, he says, right? I know a man 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I do not know. He's not even claiming to really know if this was an out-of-body experience. It was some kind of spiritual, celestial transportation. This is very Pauline way of teaching. I think you've got to know a little bit about Paul to understand his meaning here. And I don't mean to psychoanalyze the great apostle, but maybe it's warranted. Paul may be making a personal confession of his own personal struggle with sin, and that is certainly part of this. 
But it seems to me that he's giving us a heaven's eye view of the process of every man's journey from sin to conviction of sin and then on to salvation. And it certainly couldn't hurt us to read it that way. The path comes in various stages, friends. It begins with self-confidence. Remember, without the law, I was alive. Right? I was out there on my boat on the lake making music videos with all the girls. And, I mean, I was, he was just living it up. I don't know how that came to me. It just, it, uh, it just came. Um, no, he was, he was sinning, but he was alive. We know that's not his theology. He was self-confident. Friends, self-confidence when it's been served papers, the Word of God, turns to self-reflection. I wonder if Donnie was right about Jesus being the way, the truth. And... Nah, it couldn't be. But then things start to happen, and then it matters, and it would be really nice. I told you, when you, when you preach in the gospel, say, wouldn't it be good if what I said was true? Think about that. And that's what happens to the man. He said, maybe it would be, it would be better if I was like Donnie. So self-reflection turns to self-doubt. It can't go any other place. You think about yourself enough, you'll be doubting the way the man that Paul is depicting here is doubting. Doubt goes to what? Condemnation. He's right. He told me the gospel. It seems like that might be right now. Condemnation turns to despair. Despair turns to utter spiritual ruin. But it's a ruin with one final hope that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. That hope came in a message preached by a preacher or a friend or a stranger. And so in the crucial spiritual moment of a sinner's life, there's nothing left but one desperate plea. The sinner has surrendered. I was wrong all my life. The people I hated were right. They caused me to doubt. My doubt caused me to condemn myself. And now I'm in utter despair and ruin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. To be continued. Oh, Father, we thank you for these, the blessed ruminations of the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, Father, let these things be made plain to us in our understanding. But, Father, let us not resist wrestling with God over the truth and not let you go until you bless us. Like old Jacob in the wilderness, oh, Father, in Jesus' name, let us know the wonderful struggle of sanctification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.